final analysis, what is the stock market telling you? It comes back to your first question. It's basically telling you we have Goldilocks. Uh, and that, and you see that everywhere. You know, do a word search on Goldilocks. It's ubiquitous. But we should all just remember that Goldilocks was a fairy tale. Uh, and that we are not, this is not a perfect world by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's a more troubled world we've had in our hands for many, many decades. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. Today we sit down with David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research. He goes into all the reasons why he doesn't think buying right now the top of the market in the S&P 500 is the way to go. But he does give his investment picks across bonds, commodities, and some international equities as well, as well as some U.S. sectors that he thinks are actually worth buying right now. So we'll get into that conversation right now with David Rosenberg. David, thanks so much for joining me here on the podcast. You're, here we are at the beginning of the new year, and I am just really confused. We're at all-time highs in the equity markets. You know, Bitcoin is starting to see some new highs, multi-year highs. But the economy doesn't feel that strong to me. Am I am I mistaken here? Like, should should S and P be at all time highs right now, given the, the the unsteadiness that we're seeing about whether there's a landing or not? The Fed's going to have to cut because they can't, you know, crush growth at rates that are so high right now. What's what's your take on on the starting level right here? Well, look the uh, the stock market has really done a, a round trip and uh, is flat on a two-year basis. So yeah, we came back uh, a long way, especially uh, in the final few months of 2023. But the bottom line is that, you know, the stock market has not really cheapened up that much on a price earnings basis. It's basically, you know, around uh, 20 on a forward multiple. Uh, you could argue that it was higher than that uh, going into 2022. But this is a... Um, uh, it is actually a very expensive market. It's in the top 10% most expensive stock markets uh, in history. Uh, and what do investors see? Well, uh, I think that they could probably live with soft growth. Uh, I'm not so sure that the market could live with a recession. Um, but everybody and their mother uh, has thrown out the recession call months ago. So I think what the stock market has on its mind is a perpetual soft landing that uh, the growth could be meager, but still positive. But we're going to come out of this with lower inflation and lower interest rates. And so the stock market spent most of the past few months, especially since the Fed started pivoting in its language, uh, you know, basically rejoicing over the prospect that interest rates are going to come down uh, and perhaps forcefully in 2024. What the stock market hasn't caught on yet is why it is that interest rates will be coming down. Uh, and that's where we get into the big surprise for this year is going to be how earnings expectations come down and how the economy very likely morphs into that recession that uh, miraculously didn't happen last year. You mentioned this top 10% in terms of how expensive we are, right? Top 10%. Do you have data that shows well what happened after that point, right? Did we did we squeeze more gains at that point, or did it always end in, in some kind of severe downturn? It doesn't always end in a severe downturn. Uh, I think that the multiple is always important because when it's low, uh, it means that your expected returns uh, should be robust. And when the multiples are very high, 
it means that your expected future returns uh, are pretty small. So it doesn't tell you what's going to happen with the economy. It just tells you at the starting point um, what you're what you can expect from a future return perspective. When the multiple is at 20 instead of, say, 16 or 17, it means that uh, a lot of that future growth in terms of profits have already been absorbed by the marketplace. It's really not, not much different than, you know, when you look at treasury yields uh, and, uh, you know, when you have a, a 5% coupon, um, you have a lot of protection going forward. Uh, you know, as we found out when you're sub 1%, as we were in 2020, 2021, you don't have that source of support. And the multiple is very much the same. It tells you about, um, you know, what your upside uh, potential and downside risks are for the coming year from a strictly market perspective. Doesn't tell you much about the economy. I guess you could just say that where the multiples are right now, uh, you know, where the technical picture is right now, certainly where the sentiment uh, is right now, uh, it's uh, it's a pretty crowded uh, trade towards uh, the bulls, and the bulls certainly have had the upper hand. But the worst thing anybody can do is extrapolate what happened in December into next year, any more than you would have wanted to extrapolate what happened in December of 2021 into 2022, which was a brutal year, uh, or extrapolate, uh, you know, uh, December of, uh, you know, of uh, 2018, which was a horrible month, into 2019, which proved to be a, a very good year. So uh, I'd say just, uh, you know, understand that we have a, a market that looks fully invested right now and fully priced. Uh, and sentiment is really off the charts. So I think that either a pause or a pullback is going to be the order of the day, at least for the next several months. When you say sentiment is off the chart, dig a little more deeply in there. Which, which sentiment indicator are you looking at? You know, which chart is it all, off of? All of them. All of them. You look at the uh, the AAII, the American Association of Individual Investors. Uh, you know, it's showing that there's twice as many bulls as there are bears. If you go to the, uh, the uh, you know, the advisory newsletter, uh, II survey, investors intelligence, that might sound like an oxymoron, um, but that shows about three times as many bulls as there are bears uh, in that survey. Uh, you go to the CNN fear greed index, and uh, we are bordering right now on extreme greed. So um, no matter market vein, for example, uh, is back to levels that we had in the past that actually did touch off an interim correction. So um, sometimes you just can't follow the herd uh, there's one thing about, you know, chasing momentum, which I think did work in the last few months of, of last year. But, you know, when you're at a 20 multiple, which is a 5% earnings yield, when you can pick that up easily across any coupon across the corporate bond market, where you also line up in a superior part of the capital structure, uh, the equity market doesn't look too compelling right now. Uh, I didn't think it was altogether that compelling before the, the big rally late last year. But, you know, that's what animal spirits can do. And that's what price momentum markets can do. And of course, we had a lot of short covering in some of the lousiest performing stocks um, uh, in 2023. And that is why the market broadened out. Uh, but to be chasing it now at these multiples, I mean, I continue to say that in equity investors, you want to get paid to take on the risk. And right now at these multiple levels, you're paying to take on the risk. Uh, so I would be keeping the powder dry. I would be liquid, have cash on hand, because I do sense that the danger right now is not that we continue to have a blow off uh, to ever new highs in the market, but quite the opposite, that this could unravel.
and I'll tell you why. Uh, I mean, when you're taking a look at the earnings, if you had to normalize the multiple, which I said is pressing against 20, which is super elevated, um, the long run mean is closer to 16 or 17. Uh, so if you normalize the multiple, uh, it's telling you that there was 35% earnings growth embedded in equity valuations. Does anybody really think we're going to have 35% earnings growth next year? I highly doubt it. And the consensus is for earnings growth to be up more than 10% next year at a time when the, the Fed's dot plot forecast for nominal GDP growth is less than 4%. You're not going to grow earnings six percentage points this year uh, above where nominal GDP growth is. So I think that that's really going to be um, the two major things here will be earnings uh, estimates will be coming down. Uh, and at the same time, I think the markets will be grappling with, and now that they priced in the lower rates, they'll be pricing in why are these rates coming down? And it's very clear to me that the Fed is seeing something in the economy uh, that isn't readily apparent uh, in the government economic data releases that have been coming out. And if you go to the Fed's beige book, which is the most comprehensive set of economic information that comes out every six weeks in the U.S. economy, you're going to see that by late November in the last beige book, two-thirds of the economy were already either in stagnation mode or contracting outright. It was actually the weakest beige book that we've had um, that I can remember since the dark days uh, in the uh, winter and spring of 2020. Uh, the tone of the beige book was weaker than it was heading into the 1990 recession, uh, the 2001 recession, the 2008 recession. And the Fed has already told us that they're paying more attention to business contacts than they are to the government data, uh, which is getting revised consistently to the downside over the past few months. So that I think is gonna be one of the stories uh, that we'll be talking about. Uh, we spent the last few months talking about interest rates coming down uh, people will say, well, that, that should justify the multiple where it is. And I would say, well, the next phase of the story, the next chapter will be why are rates going to be coming down in 2024? And it's because the recession that everybody missed last year, much like everybody missed the 2007 recession. Remember what happened in 2008? Everybody missed the recession in 2000. It came in 2001. These are just lags. So I, I think my biggest concern is uh, this, this sense of complacency in the marketplace right now. That has me very unnerved. A lot to unpack there. So let's, let's, let's go through one by one. You mentioned corporate bonds as being more appealing than, than the equity market, right? So like talk about the numbers you're seeing there, sort of yield differences and, and where, you know, what levels between bonds and equities would change your mind? Like how far is the gap that it keeps compelling for you? Well, I think that you can pick up, uh, you know, yields of uh, at least 5% uh, throughout the spectrum. And it looks to me as though I would say the double B, triple B space looks very good. I think that, um, I think bond yields, generally speaking, would have to come down at least 200 basis points uh, to put them on a, I'd say, equivalent footing to the yield you get in the stock market. Um, yeah, either that or we have to have just one heck of a, earnings boom uh, to get those valuations on a more attractive basis. The bottom line here, and let's just look at the treasury market and look at the historical equity risk premium. 
Uh, the equity risk premium traditionally is about 300 basis points, three to 400 basis points. It's now call it uh, roughly 100 basis points. And if you think that the stock market right now is at fair value, if you put it on a comparable footings to say treasuries, uh, the 10 year note yield would have to get down to one and a half percent to equilibrate the two asset classes. Uh, so either equity markets have to correct down or we have to have one heck of a profits boom um, or bond yields have to come down rather dramatically. But if you're going to ask me at what point will we reach some sort of equilibrium or mean reversion uh, between, say, yields in the corporate market or treasuries vis-a-vis -vis the equity market, we'd have to have interest rates come down across the curve at least 200 basis points, if not more. What about... 200 basis points there. What, what are people thinking then, right? Because I, I think I'm more in your boat that how can we be at these levels, what you're expecting in terms of the equity side? And you're saying, hey, it's 35% earnings growth or we're at this you know, 20 multiple. It should be typically like 16 or 17. So it feels like, right. So let's say 16 instead of 20, we're 20% you know, downturn we're looking for, right? So instead of at 4,800, maybe we're at 4,000 on the S&P. What is in the mindset of that buyer who's like, Hey, it's at forty eight hundred. I want to keep buying more of this. Do you, do you talk to guys like this? What are, What are they saying that that they want to still be buying at these levels? I think that what they're saying is that um, we're not going to have a recession. Uh, growth is not going to speed up, but it's going to remain positive, uh, and that uh, inflation and interest rates are going to come down. So, I mean, that's your your bullish case for equities. Your bullish case for equities is really that. Uh, the Fed will be cutting interest rates and bond yields will be coming down just because of lower inflation. So that's what the bulls are looking at. They're it's looking a real chicken at, and egg. Like it's like you're saying the beige book stuff, right? The, the Fed's going to cut rates because it's not the stuff's not good out there. And, it's, and the equity guy's saying, well, it's going to be good because they're cutting rates, right? But there's a reason why they're cutting rates. It, it feels like a real chicken and egg. Well, I, well, you see, the bulls will say, well, they're cutting rates because inflation is coming down. So you get that combination of rates coming down, inflation coming down, and they would argue, well, th that justifies the multiple. Maybe they would argue that the multiple could even expand. Um, you know, I, th I mean, I'm not in their camp, but I spend most of my day trying to understand uh, what the other side of the trade is, uh, and that's what they would be saying. My point is that, can you, and it comes down to what you said, can you really have it both ways? Because inflation is coming down. Inflation represents pricing power. And so when inflation is coming down, we've come down a long way from 9% down to 3 I think we'll be down close to 0 or 1% uh, by the end of this year. That doesn't um, really speak to how we're going to get double-digit earnings growth uh, unless there's going to be massive cost-cutting. How are you going to get in the declining inflationary environment? We're already down to 3 uh, How are you going to get 10% growth uh, that's basically – the analyst projections, uh, or the 30% plus that's embedded in equity valuations, how are you going to get there in a declining inflationary environment unless you cut costs dramatically? And if you cut costs dramatically, <laughs> the cost cutting is actually what ends up tipping the economy into recession. So I think you're quite right. The logic is very circular. But since when did the stock market really ever have to have a lot of logic attached to it? A lot of this is just animal spirits. Um, you know, you go on CNBC or you look at Fox Business or you go to Bloomberg TV. 
95% of the time, it's just the equity market that's up on the screen. You rarely see anything on corporates. You don't, you rarely, you know, treasury yields will pop in. It's all about the stock market. But I mean, what are you, what are you going to do? I have clients and non-clients uh, for the past couple of years. Well, not so much in 2022, since so it didn't work, you know, for nine months of the year. But FOMO, FOMO, is FOMO like, uh, do they teach FOMO when you do your CFA classes? Uh, is, uh, you know, in the, um, uh, you know, Graham and Dodd book on value investing, does FOMO show up? FOMO or Tina or dry powder? I think I, I used that. That's the test I mean, FOMO, fear missing out. Tina, there is no alternative. This is uh, this is today's investor, right? It's become, tell you the truth, it's become a bit of a game uh, and a bit of a casino. You know, when I started in the business in the uh, early to mid 80s, uh, I mean, equities, um, nobody was too fussed about being a month behind your bogeys or a quarter. People had a long term view. Today, long term view on equity investing is lunch tomorrow. It's become more of a trading vehicle or, as you saw with the meme stocks, um, a get rich quick scheme. Uh, historically, the stock market was a, a means for companies to issue equity to finance capital investment. Who does that anymore? Um, the companies are buying back their stock. They don't issue stock for capital investment. Uh, and then on the investor side, it's become almost like a get rich quick scheme as opposed to building wealth over time. So uh, I'd say, yeah, so, um, you know, the, uh, the market uh, hitting in the final few months of last year caught on to this uh, Fed verbal pivot. Uh, and if it was a case where they were thinking, I'm talking about the equity market crowd, that, um, well, this is a Fed easing cycle that is going to involve a recession. Uh, it would mean, you know, get out of Dodge quickly. Uh, because in recessions, the stock market goes down between 20 and 30%. And you could argue the recession hasn't started yet. Uh, you know, there's some measures that suggest that it may have. There's a, most have suggest that it hasn't. Uh, but um, the reality is that if we get a recession, and I don't believe the business cycle has been repealed, and I don't believe in new eras, um, we get the recession, and that's my still my base case. Uh, I know I was talking about it last year, but uh, last year there were some uh, special factors at play that mitigated the lags from what the Fed has already done. Those lags still uh, are going to be confronting us, and there's going to be a mountain of rollovers on commercial real estate and uh, corporate debt uh, that's going to impair the economy in the coming year. De debt servicing costs, uh, no matter what happens with interest rates, uh, are going to be siphoning off money in the private sector that would otherwise go into spending, which is part of GDP, and into servicing the debt. That'll be a big story for the for the coming 12 months. But the stock market sees continued economic growth and interest rates and inflation going down, you know, which is why it's called Goldilocks. Again, uh, another term. You never heard, hear these in the bond market. Have you ever heard of a bond market person talk about FOMO, fear missing out on the bond rally. Have you ever heard of that? Or no, there's no, no one's, no one's heard of FOMO have on you, Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, Tina when it comes to uh, the bond market? Um, and when it comes to the bond market, nobody talks about Goldilocks. These are all terms saved for the equity market because it just captures our imagination. And uh, they're very sexy. Uh, and Bitcoin is also very sexy. Anything with a speculative feel to it 
uh, is as a lot of sex appeal. Uh, and the final analysis, the final analysis, what is the stock market telling you? It comes back to your first question. It's basically telling you we have Goldilocks uh, and that and you see that everywhere. You know, do a word search on Goldilocks. It's ubiquitous. But we should all just remember that Goldilocks was a fairy tale uh, and that we are not. This is not a perfect world by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's a more troubled world we've had in our hands for many, many decades. And the stock market is priced for perfection. Uh, so, look, there are some times where you got to sit back and let the, uh, you know, let the momentum take its course. Momentum will only take you so far. Performance chasing will only take you so far. Even liquidity will only take you so far. When push comes to shove, the fundamentals are going to win out. And when I talk about the fundamentals, I'm talking about earnings growth and earnings expectations. And I think that they are ripe right now for downside surprise for 2024. That's the challenge for the stock market from here. The I like what you said earlier about inflation is pricing power. I feel like people don't don't talk about it in that way. The idea, think of it like a like a raise, right? If if you can get a 10% raise, that means you, the worker, has pricing power over the company, right? And if you can only get a 2% raise, it means you don't. And I, I think when you make that point on the broader macro scale, inflation means there's pricing power on the people who set those prices, right? And when it's lower, it means they don't have it. So I, I think that's a good point to for people to remember to to think about. The the idea that you said you don't believe in new eras, right? And I've heard arguments recently on Hey, you know, ever since 08, the Fed changed the game. You know, things that we used to look at, like a twos tens curve and what that means doesn't matter anymore. You know, the, the way that the debt is, the way that they are stepping in, they're part of the government now. This is a new era. So I've heard that. I've heard AI makes this a new era. I've heard, well, you know, we have 401ks now, we have IRAs, we've got different kinds of spending patterns and rules that didn't exist 50 years ago. That makes it a new era. Are you saying that none of those things fundamentally matter or change? change your way of thinking about things. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, well, they they, um, they 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 don't actually change my mind uh, about anything. I mean, uh, generative AI is uh, going to be very significant on a long term basis uh, in terms of what it can mean for productivity and uh, the corporate cost curve, uh, and uh, it could be a game changer. But with all deference. We've had technological change, you know, for centuries, uh, if not decades. Uh, I mean, uh, Microsoft going public in 1986, that was a bit of a game changer, right? Uh, Apple computers, game changer. Uh, you know, the Netscape going public in the mid-90s and unleashing the Internet. Uh, did the Internet alter the business cycle? Um, no, we had a recession in uh, 2001, uh, and uh, it took two years to get a recovery going. That was with the internet. Uh, and then we had another recession in uh, 2000, 
in 7 and 2008 and in 2009 that that was with the internet so if the internet couldn't prevent uh two recessions uh that were you know separated uh six or seven years apart what how, how does generative ai influence the business cycle and the answer is that it doesn't it will have long-term supply side productivity effects it's not even as big as the internet did the internet change the business cycle answer is no uh, I've heard all sorts of new eras. So yeah, you brought up, okay, the Fed's balance sheet. It's, it's every central bank's balance sheet. That much is true. But um, how, much, how, much did that, um, how much did that change uh, things in terms of uh, Japan's growth? The fact that Japan's balance sheet uh, has been so enlarged and 0% interest rates. Uh, what about Europe? which has been in and out of recession for years. It's not as if the ECB hasn't been involved uh, with QE. So did these things really mitigate the business cycle, uh, central bank balance sheets? No, I guess you could say it created an environment of uh, financial repression. Uh, you know, we had a situation, for example, where we had a huge Fed balance sheet in 2019 uh, and yet the Fed was so concerned about the economy, and that was the first Powell pivot, that he cut rates three times, and that was before COVID. And I got news for everybody that when you look at the sequence, the pattern of the economic data going in towards the end of 2019 and early 2020, the economy seems to me was heading into a mild recession. We would have had a mild recession without COVID. Uh, by virtue of the fact that the Fed tightened aggressively in 2018 and ultimately the yield curve did invert uh, in the summer of 2019, we were heading there. So, uh, and then, you know, we had the pandemic, I guess uh, everything we're talking about, uh, pandemic was uh, much bigger, I guess, than the technology or much bigger than the Fed's balance sheet. We had a recession because of a global health scare, but the thing is that we were heading into a mild downturn uh, in any event. So no, I don't. Uh, I don't believe uh, in new eras. I believe that cycles have their similarities and they have their differences. And um, but the notion that the business cycle is dead um, is almost akin to saying that uh, you know we you know Mother Nature doesn't exist anymore. The as you know, I think they probably maybe the best economist of all time was a. Uh, a physicist named Albert Einstein, who famously said that interest rates are the eighth wonder of the world. We are in a credit-driven economy, uh, and we're in an economy where assets are valued based on interest rates. And we just came through the most pernicious interest rate cycle since 1981. Why did Why did Einstein say that? I, I feel like I maybe heard that quote and then forgot it. I, I tell me more about that one. Eighth wonder of the world interest rates. So. Yeah, he famously said that the power of compound interest is the eighth one of the world. I don't know what year he said it in. <laughs> he was a uh, he wasn't he was beyond just a scientist. He was into arts, uh, science, religion. He was a uh, Renaissance man. But that's a famous quote of his. Um, and uh, and and but it's a hundred percent true. Uh, either you believe look, either you believe interest rates matter, or they don't matter. I think that they matter. I don't think anything else matters more. Uh, and I believe in business cycle theory. 
And I also believe in policy lags. So the answer is no. I think that there are similarities, there are differences in each cycle. But if you're taking a look at what caused recessions, every recession in the past, and there's always been technology, and we can go all the way back to, you know, semiconductors in the 1960s. I mean, there's always been technology. There's always been technological uh, improvement. Um, you know, some sometimes you get three recessions in a decade, like in the 70s, and sometimes you go 10 years without one like we did in the 60s. But when you go through these recessions, they're all caused by the central bank. And when you go through an interest rate cycle on the upside to the point where the yield curve inverts, it's the bond market's message to everybody out there that we're going to have a recession. Now, it could be 12 months, it could be 24 months. The lags, as we all say, are long and variable. But we have to know that recessions do exist. They're not unicorns. They're not fairy tales. They're part of the business cycle. And if we escape this one, irrespective of the Fed's balance sheet, which is now shrinking, by the way, irrespective of technology and generative AI on a near-term basis is going to wreak some havoc in the labor market. It could create more uncertainty and cause consumers to save more uh, as opposed to spend more because the uncertainty is what it means in terms of um, what they're, you know, what it could mean for their job as an example. Uh, but, you know, generative AI is not a get it a jail free card for the economic expansion any more than the internet was. And that's the point I'm trying to make. What caused the recession in 2001 was we came off after the, uh, after the uh, Asian crisis ended and long-term capital and the Russian debt default. Uh, Greenspan went into uh, rate hiking mode. And what do you know, the yield curve that everybody says we should ignore now, they were saying that back then, ignore the yield curve. It doesn't matter anymore. They're not issuing long bonds, so why would we worry about the yield curve? And yet it got the story right. Um, yet again, uh, and there's countless examples. Uh, but the bond market already gave us the signal that the recession was coming. And what clogged it up last year was the fact that we did have Bidenomics. We did have a year of gargantuan fiscal stimulus last year. And that was a huge antidote to the lags from what the Fed has already done. So that's the things we should be talking about. What influences economic growth at the margin? And not over the next 10 years, we can talk, if you want to talk about productivity, which moves glacially, or talk about generative AI, we can do that. The Fed's balance sheet has nothing to do with it. This is just classic, old-fashioned interest rates that households and businesses uh, are, are paying. And then we have to assess all the distortions, because everybody in the mortgage market locked in at those lows and yield in, in mortgage rates, and now they're prisoners in their home. So there's no turnover in the resale market. Uh, so if you looked at the new housing market or you look at the home building stocks, you'll be thinking, hallelujah, what, 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 the housing market's great. And then you're taking a look at, um, you know, at, uh, at uh, existing home sales or, or flirting with levels that we haven't seen, um, you know, in, uh, in well over a decade and down 6% year over year. So uh, this is where, you know, the run-up in rates uh, at some point, uh, this is going to create debt servicing impairment. It's going to cause companies to shelve their capital spending plans because the hurdle rate is just too high. And the ability to finance, 
you know, expenditures on the household side, but not stuff that you would borrow. Uh, you know, you still go get your hair cut and you still might go out to eat. But in terms of appliances, furnitures, autos, housing, it's, it's going to be a, a pretty rough year. Uh, and hopefully the Fed will cut rates aggressively and uh, that'll breed life into the economy in 2025. But I think that's a 2025 story. 2024 story, I still will say if we don't get a recession, um, if we don't get a recession by the second quarter or the first quarter, the quarter we're in, I'd be very, very surprised. And like I said, the complacency, wow. The belief that we basically are not going to have a recession because it hasn't happened already is like saying in Toronto, Canada, it didn't snow in December, therefore winter's been called off. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's actually very unnerving uh, how, uh, how investors are positioned right now. And instead of, uh, you know, um, taking profits on what they've, uh, on their long position, uh, it looks to me going into this year, everybody is, uh, is doubling up at these, at these valuations, but that's the belief mechanism, no recession rates coming down, inflation melting, the sky's the limit. Were you surprised? You know, when you go back last year, because a lot of people thought the recession was coming in 23, it didn't come, or the market downturn didn't come. And you said, you, know, you gave the examples of you go back 15 years or 20 years, or was that, that one year lag? I think people tend to want to predict these recessions and these downturns a year too early. Could you make the argument that that almost 20% downturn we saw in the S&P that happened, you know, for second half of 22, first half of 23, and then it came back. Could you make the argument that that was the economy's forecasting of a recession? They went through it, they flushed it out, and now they've gone back. Because usually the markets tend to you know, forecast recessions in terms of they bottom out and peak and move forward before the economy's done it. Could you say, hey, that, that was the move already? I don't think we can say that right now because you'd be telling me that okay the market peaked january of 2022 uh forecasting a recession that's going to come when i mean the the recession at least the nber defined recession doesn't look like it's happened yet uh and the stock market does lead but doesn't lead by two years right at least right. you know when, when did we peak we peaked in october of 2007 recession started two months later you know, uh, the stock market peaked in September of 2000. The recession started five months later. Um, so the stock market gives you, call it maybe three to six months lead time. And it's not unusual at all to find the market, uh, do a dip and the initial dip, which we saw, and it was, uh, you know, we were down roughly 20%. Some stocks were down even more. And we're talking about back uh, heading into the lows in October of 2022. That was just the interest rate shock. That was the rate shock. Uh, and that was the impact it had on, on multiples. So it's unclear as to whether or not that was the stock market's aha moment we're pricing in a recession. It was basically interest rates and the multiple getting into a realignment with each other. You could, you could hardly say to somebody, well, we're going to have the same stock market uh, with a 5% interest rate as we had the stock market with a 0% interest rate. So you know, bonds, for example, uh, they they took a hit. They took a shock from what the Fed did. The stock market took a hit. Uh, you could argue that commodity prices took a hit. Uh, the U.S. dollar went on a nice uh, upward spiral. 
So this is all what happened after the Fed started raising rates uh, in the opening months of 2022. So I'm not so sure that it was a recession call. You and, and I could say that because the multiples, the P multiple never got down anywhere close to a recessionary level. Uh, you, had a, uh, you, know, you had a haircut on the multiple, but nothing close to what you get in a recession. So no, I would say that the stock market um, readjusted and repriced for a new interest rate regime. Uh, but the recession really never got fully priced in. Uh, and so I think that that's the question mark for the coming year. Will the recession get repriced? And, uh, and I, my sense is that there's a serious risk that it will. I think we have to understand that what happened last year uh, was very unusual. Uh, we had um, the... Uh, the fiscal side, the Bidenomics, the industrial subsidies, uh, and then we had all the lingering stimulus from the from the checks that were handed out uh, during the darkest days of COVID. But that was a energizer bunny that kept on giving uh, through all of last year. That the fiscal side last year uh, was responsible for two thirds of the economic growth that we saw. Um, when you look at the Sickly adjusted deficit, the primary deficit, the GDP ratio widened out more than four percentage points in a year where nominal GDP was 6%. So, you know, you stripped that out and really you were left with 2% nominal growth or call it negative 1% real growth. Now, this isn't just fun with figures. It's explaining why the recession people, including me, were wrong last year. We totally underestimated the extent to which we're going to see with these gargantuan deficits and debts, even more stimulus piled on. Will you keep losing that battle though? You wonder if the government continues to, to do this, right? More deficits, higher debts, more stimulus, more fiscal packages, right? It's the COVID relief, then it's Bidenomics, and we're just going to keep dumping trillions. Can they keep delaying the inevitable, right? Can they keep making you optically look wrong because they're in a way cheating the system and they keep cheating it year in, year out. Look, the government is part of the economy. And so I don't, I wouldn't call it cheating as much as um, explaining, explaining, you know, it's not every single year does fiscal policy add more than four percentage points to headline nominal GDP growth. It was extraordinary. Uh, and uh, you could get that in the context of an economy in a recession where the government's fighting tooth and nail, but there's no recession last year. This is all basically part parcel of, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the inflation reduction plan, the, uh, you know, the, um, the, the industrial subsidies, um, all this stuff. We had a boom. If there was one part of the U.S. economy that boomed last year, it was industrial construction, which skyrocketed. Uh, and yet it's interesting that uh, manufacturing production is actually going down. You could actually argue that manufacturing has been in a recession. We're building all these plants because, of course, well, we're going to become a new superpower in semiconductors, didn't you know? Uh, and yet um, we're building all these plants and we're not producing anything. I'm wondering if they'll all just basically get mothballed. This had a dramatic impact on growth last year. I think the recession would have started without the fiscal stimulus. But you see, it's over. And when you look at the numbers for next year, fiscal policy is going to be more than a percentage point drag on GDP. 
And that's what people aren't factoring in. I get all the time. Well, it's an election year. Of course, there's going to be stimulus. No, there's not. I mean, Joe Biden does not have control over Congress anymore. When he did all this other stuff, the Democrats were in control. That's over. Uh, and so you're not going to be able to stimulate, st stimulate the economy fiscally through executive orders. And um, as you can see, whether it's on the border or it's on aid to Israel or Ukraine, that I mean, the Republicans are not playing ball with the Democrats, have no incentive to. When you look at uh, the election year, you look at where is Biden weakest. Uh, I mean, he's weak, weak in a lot of areas, but for whatever reason, uh, the average Joe and Jane on the street seem to have, you know, yours and mine view on the economy that is sort of stuck in the mud. It's not evident in the data. That data continues to get revised lower, by the way. Um, but some of the data but, is. But, 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 but you see, the, the, but my main point is that is that if you're going to tell me that we're going to get more stimulus this year, you're going to be telling me that the Republicans are going to play ball with the Democrats to bail out the happen. Democrats, assimilate the economy. It, it's just not going to happen this year. It, see, that, that's the thing that's interesting is that when people talk about, well, the stock market always up in an election year, the election year effect, it's because normally fiscal policy in an election year is adding more than a percentage point to GDP growth. It, it, they're juicing up, juicing up the economy. Uh, and those prior periods, you go back 40, 50, 60 years, you had bipartisan support and all the incumbents wanted to get elected. The Republicans right now, they're, they're smelling blood in the water. Uh, so there's no stimulus on the fiscal side, but what we're left with is a mountain of debt rollovers. Uh, and maybe yeah, everybody's locked into their mortgage. That's fine. There's a whole economy outside the mortgage market. There's a lot of personal debt that rolls over within a year, a ton of corporate debt and commercial real estate. That's going to be rolling over no matter where interest rates go. They'll be a lot higher than they were upon origination. That is going to cause a default cycle. You're already starting to see it. You know, like basically, you know, how do you square these numbers? Uh, everybody talks about how great the household balance sheet is. But they look at averages and they look at aggregates, you know, and, and so everybody looks at averages. Yeah. So, you know, between, uh, you know, average out me and Bill Gates. Uh, we're the you guys are great. Out. You and Bill yeah. Gates averaged out with great. Yeah. You know, it, it, everything, it's changed at the margin. I, I'm actually just amazed at um, when you're taking a look at specifically at autos and credit cards, uh, the delinquency rates are back to where they were more than a decade ago. Uh, you know, when the, when the, you know, when the unemployment rate was well over 6%, you know, not 3.7. Imagine, so, so this goes to show you all the bad lending behavior that took place when rates were at zero and the Fed was pledging a couple of years ago that rates were going to stay at zero to perpetuity. Oops, that was like Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football. Um, there's still a price to be paid. People don't realize, and this is the one thing that caught my eye, is something that Powell talked about at the last meeting in December, which was that there's still a significant pipeline of tightening coming into the system. And what we're not going to see this year is the antidote from aggressive fiscal stimulus. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to call it cheating, but we are going to see what the emperor looks like disrobed this year. Disrobed in the sense that I'm not so sure we're going to be seeing any offset uh, to the accelerating debt service pinch we're going to be seeing from the damage that the Fed has already done this cycle. And, and you mentioned... Like you said, the beige book looks weak when you actually get into the individual stories, right? If you take the aggregates out and you look at these different household behaviors, you're seeing a lot more 
buy now, pay later, right? Because people can't really afford to pay, pay what they want to pay right now on a proper typical credit card spending. You look at, like you said, I think in some of your research, the financial distress that a lot of adults and households are having right now. And, and you sort of wonder where that's all, where that's all going to go. Cause it does seem like it's on aggregate. I know we're not using aggregate, but it does seem like it's getting a little bit weaker as opposed to a little bit stronger when you look at maybe that average family. Yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, the other part of it is the, 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 uh, buy now pay later, uh, has uh, stemmed from the fact that, um, the banks are tightening credit standards at an alarming rate. And if you look at the data, you'll see that uh, even though the application rate by the household sector for credit cards hasn't come down, uh, the rejection rate by the banks has gone way up. Uh, and of course, that would make perfect sense when you're taking a look at you know where the, the delinquency rates, one month, uh, two month, three month delinquency rates on credit cards, which was a huge factor last year in terms of propelling the consumer. Look what happened. What happened was that at the margin, people ran out of their excess savings. Not everybody, uh, but when people talk about there's still money left over, it's really among the upper echelons that haven't even noticed that they had that money. Um, who does the spending in the economy? Really, the the lower half. Uh, the upper half do the investing, lower half do the spending. And so their excess savings ran out. What do they do? They ran up the credit card bill. Uh, they are not meeting their payments on time. The banks are now constricting credit, especially in this part in, in plastic and credit cards. So what do they do next? Uh, well, the retailers say, we'll fill the valve with buy now, pay later. But you're just kicking the can down the road. Uh, and this is going to create, whether it's buy now, pay later, you're still going to pay later. Uh, and uh, with the credit cards, well, you're, you're paying later, but with a, over a 20% interest rate. Um, so, look, there's all sorts of question marks. Uh, I would say this much. I hear all the time. I hear all the time how great household balance sheets are in. And everybody looks at the debt income ratio and says, well, look where it is relative to where it was back in 2006, 2007. And I say, well, knock yourself out if you want to compare it today to the most acute credit bubble peak of all time, which was back in the mid 2000s. Outside of the mid-2000s, the debt-to-income ratio in the beloved U.S. household sector that everybody thinks has a pristine balance sheet, the debt-to-income ratio is higher today than it was at the peak of every other cycle going back the past six decades outside of 06 and 07. So I would actually posit that, no, sorry, household balance sheets are not in great shape. They're only in great shape when you compare it to, you know, the, uh, the, the, the most uh, acute credit bubble of all time. Uh, and um, and you're seeing it now in terms of not debt, but the debt service ratio and the impairment and the fact that you're seeing this visible increase in delinquencies. Now, I'll say even in mortgages, residential mortgages, the delinquency rates have started to pick up in the past several months. Uh, but when you're taking a look at other tranches of the consumer space, uh, autos and personal loans and uh credit cards. It's a little disturbing. You don't normally see delinquency rates going up like this with the unemployment rate this low, which comes back to what I said before. That just tells you about all the bad lending behavior. Reckless, but we've seen this time and again. This is what years of zero, zero interest rates do, uh, is they promote uh, excessive risk-taking by both parties, borrowers and lenders. 
And so uh, I think that that's uh, what we're going to be staring at, uh, you know, for the coming year. And I'm starting to think what happens, God forbid, if the unemployment rate does go up. If this is what you're getting, delinquency rates at over decade highs with a sub 4% unemployment rate, where do these go? What does it mean for the financial system? Where does it go when the unemployment rate really goes up for good? What if we go to 4 4 half, or 5% on the unemployment rate? And then there's all sorts of knock-on effects in terms of what this means for the financial system, loan loss provisioning, credit availability, so on and so forth. And that's when you get into the self-reinforcing downward loop in the economy, which, of course, is not in anybody's mind right now, except maybe for me. So how are you positioned there? How are you telling clients to be positioned? You know, there's the classic 60-40. I know you mentioned staying in cash, staying liquid. What's what's a good place to be if if someone is asking you, you know, for real, like, where should I put my money? You mentioned corporate bonds. You know, what's you got to be? You got to participate, right? You can't be short the market. You can't you can't be just completely out of it. So how would you how would you position right now? Well, I mean, I'm not telling anybody to short the market, uh, but um, I mean, if you're in a market neutral long short fund by a manager who knows what they're doing, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would say that. Uh, yeah, I, look, I don't, I don't believe in zero or a hundred. Um, there's always shades of gray, and I've been in the business long enough to know that there's no such thing as a sure thing, and you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, I would say that within your equity portfolio, I would say two strategies. The first is own sectors that will correlate with declining interest rates, and so that would involve utilities. And that would involve telecom and that would even involve REITs. And then at some point, uh, especially when you consider that the U.S. banks are trading at or below book value, um, you could argue there's a sector where a recession has been priced in. Uh, if the Fed cuts rates and reestablishes a positively sloped yield curve, you could argue financials at some point will be less of a trade and more durable than that. I think what we had in the past last few months was more of a trade, but I think there might be other positive reasons to go into the banks uh, at some point next year. So, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly bearish on the cyclicals. I think the growth stocks, uh, technology, uh, where the companies are great. I mean, the companies, the tech companies in the U.S., they're amongst the best in the world, but you got to sometimes draw a distinction between a great company and a great stock. Uh, I think there'll be better opportunities. Uh, I, I mean, you've got some of these companies, you know, that uh, Apple, for example, being one, uh, Microsoft, their, their multiples are double their historical norm. But I don't think that their growth prospects are double the historical norm. I think it's just gotten a little wonky. Uh, but at some point, uh, they might be the first places um, that I redeploy money into, uh, but not at these valuations. So I think that, you know, I'd want to focus on the rate sensitive sectors of the stock market. That's not a big share of the stock market, but that's what we be focused on. And then I'd be focused on long-term thematics that um, transcend the business cycle. The world is a troubled place. The world is a very troubled place. Military budgets are going up everywhere. They're going up in Japan. They're going up in Europe. They're certainly going to be going up uh, in, in the United States. They're going up everywhere. And so I'd say that aerospace defense, uh, I think a, a very good place to hide. Uh, I think that as the Fed cuts rates, the U.S. dollar will roll over as it already has. And I think that precious metals, especially gold, 
uh, will be a very good place to be. The gold mining stocks have lagged. The gold was up 13% last year, but the gold mining stocks weren't. They got some catch-up to do. There's some opportunities there. So I like precious metals. Uh, I think you could argue that you know, we have uh, multiple wars going on around the world. Uh, and that should net on net be positive for the commodity complex. Uh, you want to be selective. Uh, and then there's uh, the other part, which is what's not going to go away, obviously, which is nuclear and uranium, uh, which is in a full-fledged bull market. So I think there's uh, secular themes out there, food security, cyber. Um, uh, there's, there's places that you can put money. I think that globally, uh, I do believe that uh, Japan is in a secular bull market, uh, that we are seeing the last leg of Abinomics, may you rest in peace coming to the fore, dramatic shifts in corporate governance that large parts of the world don't quite understand. I've been writing about Japan for the past couple of years. Uh, they had a phenomenal year, but we're all focused on the NASDAQ 100. The Japanese market had a, had a very good year. Uh, and I think that when the Bank of Japan normalizes interest rates or starts that road, it's going to be very good news for the financials. And let's face it, I don't think you want to make a bet against uh, Warren Buffett on that score. India uh, as also in the secular bull market for, for different reasons. They are going through, I mean, Modi might be a divisive character, but uh, he, has, uh, he has overseen a dramatic improvement in uh, infrastructure. Everybody always said that India was uninvestable next to China because of the lack of infrastructure, but that's changing. And product, the productivity numbers, because I look at the supply side of the economy, the productivity numbers in India are running around 2.5%. So they're seeing a secular re-rating uh, on their assets too. So I'm looking at Japan, I'm looking at India. Uh, Mexico is a huge beneficiary from the so-called French shoring and this ongoing move towards diversifying global supply chains. So regionally, those are three markets that I like. Uh, and people think, because I don't like the S&P 100, I must be some sort of radical permit bear. No, there were three regions that we actually wrote about that we liked last year that did quite well. On top of that, I would have to say that uh, I think the bond market, uh, we, we started to see a reversal in interest rates, uh, a reversal in the bear market in bonds. I think bonds are in a new bull market and you want to participate primarily by being at the long end of the curve. I think that if you're looking for a 15 to 20% return next year, uh, I think that the longer end of the treasury market is going to deliver that. And that, that might be my highest conviction call is uh, that the whole yield curve shifts lower it pivots to a more normal shape. Remember that the yield curve is only inverted historically 15% of the time. But because of the power of convexity, you want to be in the long bond. Or if you want to buy it in the stock market, you can go buy TLT. Yep, TLT. Uh, I, yeah. So I think that the bond, I think the long end of the bond curve is going to be, I think duration, I would say ordinarily, you'd say, well, you should be bullish on uh, Kathy Woods and be bullish on uh on, on the growth stocks. And, and ordinarily I would, because uh, they're the longest duration stocks in the market um, and uh, they will benefit from lower yields. Uh, however, the valuations are just not compelling right now. Before we go, pick a book from, from back there or, or another book. What's a book that you would recommend people read right now? They got to get their heads straight for this current environment that we're in. Hmm. Oh boy! Well, look at uh, I think that firstly, uh, you can turn around if you need to cheat. If you need to see, I don't, need to, cheat. I don't need to cheat. I've, I've read. I, I, at least I read the. I read the last last chapter of at least half those books. <laughs> uh, 
I'd say that, um, well, firstly, uh, in one book, it's not there. I, I think that we should, uh, we should be reading um, George Orwell's 1984 and make sure our kids are reading it too, because I'm not so sure they teach it at school anymore. I think that we are in a real trouble time. Uh, and I'm starting to think about, you know, were people talking about World War I, you know, with uh, Sarajevo, in uh in in uh in in, in uh, 1914 or were they talking about world war ii with sudetenland in 1938 uh this is a we, we are in a this is the most troubled world that we've had um and i'm talking about that it's you know this whole situation we have in our hands is all sponsored by iran okay uh iran is sponsoring this war in the middle east and i'm very fearful that it's going to spread and pull the U.S. in. Uh, and, um, well, look who started the other war in the Ukraine, uh, Russia. You have Russia, China, and Iran, otherwise known as Oceania. <laughs> and then there's the rest of the so-called civilized world. I, I think that people can't see past the tip of their nose. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would say that uh, let's go back and reread George Orwell, 1984. Let's pick up a couple of history textbooks. Okay, you're telling me about new eras? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that uh, that um, that the war that we've had between the good and the bad um, that has really never gone away. <laughs> And the thing about these dictatorships, they like to hang around with each other and exploit the weakness in the rest of the world, especially because uh, there is no uh, there is no real leadership, uh, no strong leadership globally. So uh, I'm a little concerned. That's why I would say my you know I said treasuries, and then you know the the best hedge against a troubled world is really you could argue gold, you could argue oil. And uh, and defense stocks, which have done remarkably well. Uh, that's that's how you hedge in a world that's becoming more troubled. Um, I think that there's a book that's behind me. I don't know where it is. Uh, the uh, the Daniel Kahneman book. I think everybody. Uh, I buy copies for presents. This is this book is just it was a game changer for me, and it was called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Thinking fast and slow. So what's really great about the book is it helps you understand how to cope with rationalizing situations. You read that book by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel uh, laureate. Uh, you read that book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It is a phenomenal book on how to basically approach how to deal with all the things you and I were just talking about for the past hour. I think you're right. Those are some good ones. I I read the Kahneman book. I need to get back to 1984. I, I read it many years ago, but I think it's a good one to to review again. And then just remind people where can they where can they find you? It's the Rosenberg Research website. Is there a social media if people want to follow more of you, yeah. David? Where can they find? Uh, yeah, you? I'm on I'm on I'm on Twitter, and uh, I have my own uh, YouTube channel, uh, LinkedIn, obviously. But uh, the best thing for anybody to do if they uh, want to uh, you know kick my tires and check me out and check my firm out. Uh, you could just Google Rosenberg Research. It'll just take you right there. Or 
You can email us to uh, information at rosenbergresearch.com. And uh, viewers on the show, all the viewers on the show should know that um, you contact us and we will be happy to give you a 30-day free trial on everything that we do. That's great. That's amazing. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time, for, for really breaking down your ideas and for just helping us think through the, the craziness that I think 2024 will be. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to my guest, David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research. Of course, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, I need help with my family's finances, with my investments, please go to Wealthion.com. There's a short form right there. We can connect you with investment advisors that we endorse, that we have vetted, that we think that you might actually kick it off well with. There's no obligation. There's no commitment. There's no cost. It's totally free. You can just fill out the form. You can have a short conversation, see if you like them, see if they're a fit for you and your family. And if not, that's totally fine too. We just provide this as a free public service for you to check out. Once again, that is at Wealthion.com. Also, Wealthion.com slash Ask Anthony. You can submit your questions for the Anthony Scaramucci live call-in show, which is Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. That's every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. You can go to the website to get your questions in there, or you can just call directly live on the show. If you like this episode, please feel free to share it, like it, subscribe, forward it, comment, engage, tell your friends. Those are all the ways that we can get this content out to as many people as possible. Thank you so much for watching and listening. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.